You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jake Perry is sitting on top of the Matterhorn with his two new friends, Richard Davis Deacon and Jean-Claude Clairot. And they spent four days on the Matterhorn, but the Deacon wouldn't allow them to summit till the fourth day. And now they're eating lunch and looking at the view, and Jean-Claude is giving Jake, our narrator, the catechism he receives on every mountain. Jake, you must love something about every good mountain. The Matterhorn is a good mountain. Did you love the face of this mountain? None. The faces of the Matterhorn, especially the north face upon which we spent most of our time, were not worth loving. They were rubble. They were constant rockfall and avalanche. But you love the rock itself. No. The rock is treacherous, friable. It lies. Drive in a piton with a hammer and you never hear the proper ring of steel against iron, of iron against rock, and a minute later you can easily pull the useless piton out with two fingers. The rock on the faces of Matterhorn is terrible. Mountaineers know that all mountains are in a constant state of collapse, their verticality being inescapably and inevitably worn down every moment by wind, water, weather, and gravity. But the Matterhorn is more of an unstable pile of constantly crumbling rubble than most peaks. Love the rock here? Nowhere. Never. Ah, but you did love the ridges. None. The famous ridges of the Matterhorn, the Italian and the Swiss, the Fergan and the Zamut, are either too dangerous, raked with rockfall and snow avalanche, or too tame, pocked with cables and fixed ropes for the lady climber and the 70-year-old English gentleman. Love for this mountain's ridges? There is none. At least not since Edward Wimper's day, when all was known. But you love the mountain. You know you do, Jake. What do you love? We. The Matterhorn is a mountain that gives the climber numerous problems to solve. But unlike the unclimbed north face of the Eiger and certain other peaks I've seen or heard about, the Matterhorn also gives a good climber a clean, clear solution to each problem. The Matterhorn is a heap of tumbling rubble, but the faces and ridges are beautiful to look upon from a distance. She's like an aging actress who, beneath the sadly obvious and peeling makeup, still boasts the cheeks and bone structure of her younger self, and there are frequent glimpses of her once near-perfect beauty. The shape of the Matterhorn itself, standing alone, unconnected to any other mountain, is perhaps the cleanest and most memorable in all the Alps. Ask a young child who has never seen mountains to draw a mountain, and she will use a crayon to draw the Matterhorn. It is that iconic. And with its upper north face actually bending out beyond the vertical, like a wave breaking, the mountain appears to be constantly in motion, and that sheer overhanging face breeds its own weather, gives rise to its own masses of clouds. It is that serious a mountain from the abominable. Dan Simmons is the Hugo Award-winning author of science fiction novels that include Hyperion, Ilium, and Olympos, the Joe Kurtz mystery novels including Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and Hard as Nails, horror novels that include Summer of Night, Children of the Night, and A Winter Haunting, historical novels that include The Crook Factory, The Terror, Drood, Black Hills, and his most recent science fiction novel, Flashback. His new novel is The Abominable. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's a pleasure. It's been too long, Rick. I agree. One of the things, the second we get into this novel, the first character we meet is you. And we have a lot of fun with you as a character. I'd like you to talk about crafting yourself as a character in this novel and you using this kind of uh, the wrapper. Well, I've, this is my 29th novel. And to my knowledge, I haven't used myself or my wife. We're both characters in this book. And I've never done that before. But I have to tell the reader how I met the real Jacob Perry, the man who was part of this uh, 1925 expedition to Mount Everest that was never recorded, has never been talked about until he wrote about it in 1992. And so I have this, uh, like Marlowe in uh, 
Conrad's Lord Jim. I just, uh, me framing it front and back of how I met the gentleman who had that experience and survived it. And uh, a long introduction of how I went to see him when he was 91 years old. And then at the end, a little wrap up of my reaction after when I visited his grave. And in between, it's all the voice of Mr. Jacob Jake William Perry. So you actually met uh, uh, Jacob Perry? The book is dedicated to him, and I wouldn't do that if he weren't real, would I? Would I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, so uh, I really like the way you create yourself in here. You're kind of, it's very, it's a self-deprecating portrait, and I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, My wife thought it was very accurate, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I deprecated enough. I, I think, too, it's a nice way to, to give us some clues. There are some great clues right at the beginning. You mention a camera, and the second our, your readers read that, it, we're practically on our racing to the end of the book, and I think that's a nice way to set up the, the tension in this book. Thanks. There's a camera that was rather important on Mount Everest, as those who know about uh, Mr. Mallory and Sandy Irvin's disappearance in 1924. There's a missing camera that would tell us whether or not they made the summit. So you have to be thinking camera from the time you start reading The Abominable. Now, this is a kind of an interesting book. You've written lots of different kinds of books. Um, you've written a lot of pulse-pounding thrillers. and you, the, the, um, Mart, the Joe Kurtz mysteries are a good example, but uh, flashback is is another Darwin's Blade. I mean, these are really tense, intense books, and I can see a book of this story um, being like about a 250-page intense thriller. You've taken a slightly different tack in this and given us something that's reminiscent of the terror, a really intricate historical novel full of these great details that really layers and builds up this world, which is very foreign to us, the world of the mountains, the Everest and Alps in the 1920s. Talk about the decision to write that in this format. Well, I was tempted to do the former of what you were describing. Uh, with a climbing book, you can get plenty of action in. So it could be a 300-manuscript-page uh, book and be accepted. I could have written just the climbing scenes and had a little zinger at the end, and it would have been a book, I think, that the publisher would have taken. But once I decided to try to recreate that entire climbing world of 1924 and the world of 1925, when there was no British expedition to Everest, at least officially, once I decided to do that, then I knew I was in for, I was actually leading the reader into another 450 pages beyond that 200-page book. You know, one of the things I liked about this book was that as a reading experience, it duplicates uh, the climbing experience in that there's a lot of preparation. We, we get to really experience things on a very detailed level. And I think that that, I'm wondering how much of that is deliberate and how much of that just was kismet. Well, I don't believe in kismet, so I hope it's all deliberate. Um, it, it, it's real time in different ways. Both the preparation of the materials has gone into great detail because they were so important. They meant the difference of life and death in mountaineering in those days. The average climbing rope in 1924 would snap if someone fell 20 feet. Um, they wore, when, when they found Mallory's body in 1999 on the 75th anniversary of his disappearance on Everest, he was wearing just layers of silk, cotton, two layers of wool, and a gabardine Shackleton um, overcoat. And that's how they went out to the top of the world where it can be 40 or 50 below. And uh, the average American, if it's a chilly fall day, we go out in our fleece and our goose down. And we were much better prepared on a fall day with what we have now than they were in 1924 with the best they could buy. And uh, there was one guy, there's a character in the book who's real, his name is George Finch. And he created goose down clothing and for the 1924 expedition. And Finch wasn't a member of the Old Boy Network. He'd grown up in Europe, so his, he was an Englishman, but he had a German accent. So he wasn't quite right. And he was also uh, too interested in fads, like changing the technology of climbing. So he was not quite right for the Old Boy Network. But he created this great goose-down 
coat, overcoat, and he had to experiment with scores of fabrics because you have to be able to sew it, but you can't allow the goose down feathers to get out. Um, and it has to be manageable and it has to be tough and resilient. So he ended up using balloon frag, uh, fabric rather, and uh, packed it with goose down. And I have just one photo. I have hundreds of photos while I was writing this book all around me, so I'm always referring to them. But the photo I think I enjoy the most are four Everest climbers walking along in their puttees and their wool, and their soaked wool probably weighs 60 pounds, just what they're wearing is soaked with its sweat and from snow. And here comes George Finch along the ridgeline in what looks like a lady's goose down overcoat. <laughs> he, he looks quite warm and happy. So talk a little bit about, I mean, uh, attempting a book like this is much like climbing a mountain. There's a lot of preparation and, and bef that goes into it. So talk about the kind of preparation you did and the kind of planning you did. And as you were preparing and planning, were you thinking about the kind of uh, mountains that, the kind of preparation that went into the, these assaults? Actually, your metaphor is more accurate than you know, maybe, because um, there are two ways to go out a mountain. And the way that the, the nations, there was really a national effort, American, and started with the English, to go after at 8,000 meter peaks was to make it a military assault. And it was based on their attempts at the South Pole, where you have X number of men carried to Camp 1 and it may take weeks. Then you establish Camp 1, and you have another group of men carried to Camp 2, and they're worn out and so forth until you get close enough to the pole that the heroes can make their dash to the pole and have the food stores on the way back. So it was a military assault. It was from the Great War that had just finished, World War One, and that's the way they went after Mount Everest and the other 8,000-meter peaks and up through the 1960s when the Americans finally had their expedition. I think we had a thousand people on the American expedition to put four men on the summit of Everest in 1961-62. And it was definitely a military assault. And that's the way I approached writing the book, um, making preparations at each point, sort of a payload area with different information for the reader should they want it, with different preparation for the hardships that are coming up, with different understandings of the character's abilities as a climber and as a human being. So it went along that old military plan. The other way, which is more popular in Himalayan climbing now, and which our heroes in this book wanted to do, is the alpine assault, which is you just go at that mountain and get up as quick as you can and down as quick as you can. And it was considered impossible for Everest, but climbers like Reinhold Mesner and so forth have done it in recent decades. Uh, they take a, a, a bivouac bag and they go up the face of Everest in two days, and they come down in one day with no oxygen. Absolutely impossible by 1924 standards, and now it's done all the time. It seems, when I look, when I, I must admit this is a book that made me look some stuff up, and, and when I looked up uh, Messner's achievement, I, after reading this book, I just thought, oh my God, how is that even possible? And, and one of the things that's really interesting about this book is you've written a lot of science fiction and I think there's a lot of the retro science fiction writer comes out in this book. Oh no! No, I love it because it's this kind of feeling of you give us all these kind of, we see technology being invented right in front of our faces even though it's technology that now exists it's for these people what they're they're kind of like the, the Captain Nemo's of their day. You're right and and Tom Swift and one of one of the three main characters, the male characters, we've got the deacon, who's the older man, 37 years old, same age as uh, uh, Mallory when he disappeared in 1924, and he had survived the Great War, and uh, it changed him irrevocably. He, we learn late in the book that he's a lord, but he'd given away, he tried to give away his title, but it was illegal. You couldn't renounce your title until the 1980s, I think. But he gave away his estates. And we've got Jake, the narrator. He's a wide-eyed, innocent American. But Jean-Claude Clairot, my Frenchman, he was just too young to fight in the Great War, but he lost two older brothers, five cousins, two uncles. And his father had had a series of blacksmith shops when the war began. And in 1924, when the book opens, his father's running a huge steel plant. So whatever Jean-Claude can design, his father can manufacture. So I'd cheat a little bit. For instance, I have 12-point crampons about six years before they were actually used. 
and I have a mechanical ascender, the thing you hook onto a rope to ratchet up, and it'll hang onto the rope, you know, when you release the handle. It's what makes climbing ever as possible for all these amateurs today because they're fixed ropes, and they use jumars, they're called. And I ask seven professional climbers I know where the name jumar come from, and none of them knew, so I went ahead, and in my story, somebody asked Jean-Claude, why do you call this mechanical ascender a jumar? He said, oh, it was the name of my dog when I was when I was a boy. It's so much fun. You know, I, I really like the... Uh the the sense of the historical backdrop, the way you weave this in, because there's a lot of stuff that goes into these expeditions. It's not just the preparation of the men and the equipment. There's a lot of politics that's happening, bubbling in the background, at least in the beginning of this book. And I think that you do a great job of uh, planting, uh, planting the seeds of these politics. And I'd like you to talk about uh, especially what hap- what had happened in Europe after World War One? Because it's a fascinating uh, science experiment that will not turn out well. That's a good way to put it. Two of my characters, the deacon and wide-eyed Jake, the narrator, uh, go to Munich to talk to some German climbers, partially about the equipment that they use, but also because these German climbers were in the area of Everest, supposedly, when two other British people disappeared there. And Jake has, has the idea that the mother of missing Lord Percival Bromley will pay them to go find him. So they go to Munich and they meet with these German climbers who also happen to be young Nazis. And the Nazi party was just reaching its uh, fanatical beginning in 1924. But they get a big taste of it. And Jake is uh, so naive about European politics that he assumes that since the word socialism is in National Socialist Party, that these are just communist-type socialists. He doesn't get it. And the leader, they have a picture of Hitler in the beer hall where a year earlier they had had the beer hall pooch from the, tried to overthrow the government and uh, um, a lot of the Nazis got shot and Hitler ran away and was found, I think, in his cousin's home hiding under a kitchen table. And he was in jail for a year, but they were treating him, the government, and the warden was treating him like a king. And uh, the reason is that Germany had gone through hyperinflation. In 1923, you could get into the cinema, it was one mark uh, for a ticket. And by 1924, it was over 100 marks for a ticket to get in to see a movie. And by 1925, it was over a million marks. They actually were printing million mark bills and you carried money around in wheelbarrows without joking, but it was useless. The hyperinflation was so unlike the American Depression. We didn't have money, but the economy still rumbled along in a fashion. In Germany, it ground to a halt. Money was worthless, unless you wanted to start a fire with it. So people were selling their candlesticks, fine families were selling their furniture, and this was the environment that Hitler came out of. It's such an interesting uh, perception and uh, background for for the story, as well as uh, World War One, which plays a part in this as well. It does because everyone who experienced it was changed forever, except somebody, I suppose, whose soul was so dull and dead that they could perceive nothing. But certainly, someone as sensitive as my character, Richard Davis Deacon, who had been a poet before the war, and uh, was now a Buddhist. It's funny, everybody has rather strange religious affiliations in in the book. When we meet um, someone whom uh, Jake calls a coolie, he turns out to be a Sherpa, but he's a Roman Catholic and he's a doctor who's been trained. He went to Oxford and he was trained in London Medical School. And uh, here we have the deacon leading the expedition into Tibet and he turned into a Buddhist. And when one of the other characters asks him when, he gives the date and hour of the Battle of the Somme. So, one of the things I I I love that you know the way that all these kind of details inform our characters, and it also gives this novel a big sense of adventure. This novel unfolds across all Europe. It has train journeys, and I love that feeling of kind of an old-fashioned adventure novel that you can really get lost in. And I'm wondering if you as a writer, um, how much of this you had to, you know, plan out in advance and how much of it you had, you just had let yourself improvise. 
I'm not big on improvisation. I never know where the book's going. I don't know how it's ending. Uh, I, I allow that to dictate itself, and I allow the book and characters to surprise me. But things like details, I try to know ahead before I write it. If they're going to take the train from this little station in northern India to Darjeeling, I know it's sort of a miniature train. It's almost like a train you'd see in a, a zoo or something now that kids get in. Uh, but that was the only train at Darjeeling, but I had to see photographs of it. And when they get to Darjeeling, they're staying in the Everest Hotel, and everything had to stop for a week or so until I actually found a brochure with photographs from that hotel from 1924. So, And I had the idea it would be gray and rather gothic, and it looks like uh, something in Wales, something in England, you know, thatched roof-type cottage. It was totally opposite my imagination. If I'd improvised this real hotel, I would have been so far off the mark. And that's important to me not to, not to uh, share idiocy deliberately if I can avoid it. Well, too, writing a novel like this must be like a really fun challenge because you have the swath of history from A to B, and there's stuff we know and stuff we don't know, and you want to put your characters, run it through all the dark cracks of that history, and you have to find those cracks, but then you have to backfill them with information from the real history. That's true. And it's a delicate balance because if you go too far one way or the other, it's just uh, something feels wrong to the reader or does to me as a reader. It helped that much of the adventure and plot takes place in Tibet. And Tibet in 1924 and 25, when I have my small expedition um, of these friends, and Cousin Reggie has to go. That, by the way, Lady Bromley, who underwrote this to find the body of her son who disappeared same time Mallory and Irvin, not connected with them, but disappeared on a mountain. She said, uh, paid the money, but uh, Cousin Reggie had to watch over the finances and take care of Sherpas and so forth, and they agreed. They could put up with this Ponce, whoever this Cousin Reggie was, and they figured they'd leave him at base camp and, you know, be on with their climbing. Uh, but Cousin Reggie turns out to be the Lady Catherine Christina Regina Bromley Montfort, who has been running a Darjeeling... Uh, tea plantation about the size of Massachusetts. Her husband lasted uh, four months in India and died, and she's been there since she was a child, and she's a, she's a good climber. So I've had actually people ask me, are there really women climbers that can do 8,000-meter peaks? And I get the best blurb I got for this book I received from one of the most famous women climbers in the world who's uh, done eight of the 11 8,000-meter peaks. But I'm getting off the track. The idea is to bet in those days was truly unknown. And the Himalayas were so strange that the British and the Europeans knew less about Mount Everest and the conditions and the effect on the human body and so forth and the topography and the layout and how to get to it. How do you get to the base of the mountain? It took Mallory and the first expedition four months of a summer. You shouldn't go in the summer because that's when it snows the heaviest. They were under snow the whole time. But it took them almost four months to find a route to get to the base of the mountain because the glaciers are so convoluted in the dry valleys. Uh, so we know more about all of Mars than they knew about Everest in 1924, and I find that fascinating. Well, it is it is really interesting because one of your characters points that out, that it's um, it's so high. It's it's almost it's for all intents and purposes for for that time. It's outer space. Uh, you talk about the death zone, where above which people just start to die no matter what they do, and it's it's a creation of an alien world. I think that's what is so interesting about this that it, the the Everest half of the book is is really uh, a quite a fine piece of world building. Yeah, it's a real world, and I, having not been there, you know, I'm I'm being presumptuous in writing about it, but having been interested in Everest and in mountain climbing since I was nine years old, and uh, having the slightest taste of it by just hiking up a lot of mountains in Colorado and knowing real climbers, um, I, I presume to write about Everest, and the alienness of it is, is almost beyond our comprehension. If you take a world-class athlete, today even, and teleport him or her from the streets of London 
to Camp 3, which is at the base of the 1,000-foot icefall that gets you up on the glacier before you get on the ridge of the mountain. It's at 23,900 feet. If they suddenly arrive there, they pass out within 15 seconds. It's not that there's lack of oxygen. There's almost as much oxygen near the summit of Mount Everest as there is a sea level. But the pressure is so low, it can't push those oxygen molecules into your bloodstream. And some climbers, uh, Conrad uh, Anker, who found Mallory's body in 99, uh, tests have been done on him, and his body absorbs oxygen so efficiently that when there's 70% normal oxygen, which would put most of us on our backs, uh, he, can, he can climb a 30-foot rock wall at 28,800 feet. So part of it is just luck of genetics, and uh, a lot of it was learning how to deal with that altitude. One of the things I think, uh, obviously a book like this needs some great characters to drive it. And I really love all your characters, your, your three main climbers. Let's talk a little bit about the deacon who uh, goes through some interesting changes in the, in the course of the book. We see different sides of the same man. And I've seen a lot of different kinds of characterizations, but it struck me as really true that people can be one person but have different aspects of their characters exposed by different circumstances. And I thought that was nicely done in this book. Uh, don't you find that true in uh, any serious relationship you have, friendship <laughs> as well as intimate? <laughs> yeah, but that's a different, uh, that's not at 28,000 feet. That's true. At 28,000 feet, there's no messing around with a relationship. If you don't completely trust the person on the other end of that rope, you're in the wrong place. And that's the wrong person on the other end of the rope. That's why I was always curious why George Mallory chose um, Sandy Irvin to make the final assault on the summit with him, because Irvin was a novice. He'd never done any 8,000-meter climbing. He hadn't been on the previous expeditions. He'd never done any serious mountain climbing. And here he was making the assault with the greatest climber in the world, and they both disappeared on June 8, 1924. But why did he choose him? I guess it was just trust. But it was also the fact that Mallory, who had spent two years saying no one should use bottled oxygen, what they called English air at the time, you shouldn't use English air to try to get to the summit, when he realized that he was able to climb about 400 feet per hour along the ridge, and George Finch and others in the 1922 and then 24 expeditions who were using English air, bottled air, could climb up to 1,000 feet in an hour, he changed his mind, Mallory did, and he, he, when he made an attempt on the summit, both he and Irvin were using oxygen sets. And Sandy Irvin is an interesting character. He was very young, 22 years old, and today he'd be in some remedial program. He was obviously dyslexic. He'd, he'd pass through Oxford, but he couldn't write a sentence. You can't understand. I, I read original sources, and you can't read his writing. But he was a technical wizard. And he's like an alien in, uh, I forget, the mode in God's eye, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell's famous first contact novel. They have these evolved little aliens that really aren't sentient, but they can fix anything. And they'll improve the technology of anything that come along, uh, comes along. So when they get on the human ship, they're fixing percolators and, you know, anything anybody sets out. The human ray gun, they set it out in the hallway, and these little modis fix it. And that was Sandy Irvin. We know for a fact that he was still improving the oxygen set when they were camping, trying to get a few hours sleep at 28,400 feet at Camp 6. So, you know, at that time, you just hope for two or three hours of being knocked out so you can start your 28-hour next day for the summit. But he was still working on cold metal and improving the regulator valve and the oxygen sets. So that may be why Mallory took him. You know, the the circumstances of these climbs, it's, it's so interesting because <clears throat> we see kind of, or at least in our minds, we some, sometimes see like pristine mountains. You look at the, the pictures of these mountains, that it's just white snow and ice and rock and you think the that conditions on the ground are sort of pristine but they're really not the places where the humans have been it's so hostile there's just junk <laughs> everywhere and i think that's one of the more interesting aspects of this of the climbing culture everest was a ghetto i mean it was a real slum but in the last decade um, abba sherpa who summited everest 24 times 
and several other Sherpas started a movement to get those oxygen tanks off the South Call, where uh, you camp on the way up, all these people who pay to get to the top of Everest. Um, in 1987, when Conrad Anker started climbing, there had been 291 people to the summit. And now there have been over 5,000 summitings. Uh, over 3,300 people have done it, and many have done it multiple times. The guides have been up a lot of times, and they kept leaving their junk there. But the Sherpas cleaned that up. They brought down most of those oxygen tanks. The northern face, the Chinese side, is still pretty littered. But the one thing they didn't bring down, which I think must be disturbing to some of these clients who are paying their $50,000 to be helped to the summit of Everest, and you have to admire the courage of anybody who's going to go up there. But one thing that hasn't been policed are the more than 200 dead bodies that line the route, that all the main routes to the summit of Everest. And for many of the guides, uh, it must be especially disturbing because those bodies are friends and fellow climbers that they've known for decades. And let's talk a little bit about the Sherpas and the, the, the guides. And one of the things I think that you do well in this book is uh, we experience it from Jake's perspective. And, and Jake is an American, so even though there's a... a Reserve a feeling for for the Sherpas. He he's still just a little bit distant, and I think you you do a great job of giving like a realistic vision of how somebody in 1924 would perceive these men who that we know now are like light years beyond <laughs> us in their ability to deal with the, this environment. Uh, thanks for liking that, by the way, Jake. Um Jake is my uh, candide. He's um, he's so wide-eyed and innocent that he was just beginning to understand a little bit about European culture after a year climbing with his friends there. And suddenly he's exposed to India and to Tibet, to Asian culture, and he doesn't know what to make of it. Um, the deacon, who is a tremendously humane man, he is a poet in his soul, but he starts to refer to Reggie, the the woman's, number one Sherpa and friend, and um, the really master of the plantation, refers to him and the others as coolies, which is was the English habit at the time. The porters were coolies, which is, of course, is, is a pretty insulting term. And Reggie immediately corrects the deacon. They are porters, and these are Sherpas, and these are Tibetans, and all the different groups. So Jake is taking on all this in and trying to understand it. And he's trying to understand Buddhism, which is pretty hard from a standing start. You know, the deacon has studied it for years, and we get the idea that he has certain glimpses. But even he, exposed to Tibetan Buddhism, is, um, I don't know, a put-off maybe is the right word. Um, one of the porters dies, a friend of Jake's dies, and Jake goes to the man's funeral at Tangbosh Monastery about 12 miles from uh, the entrance to the glacier of Everest, and uh, it's a um, it's a sky funeral similar to one I watched in Bombay, but there in Bombay in the Tower of Silence they put the bodies out in this large it looks like a skyscraper that's just not been framed up yet just girders, and there are always hundreds of vultures circling over the Tower of Silence, and so the body is given back to the world through the vultures, but. Jake makes a mistake of going to the ceremony at the Tangbosh Monastery where there's actually a um, hereditary, not a caste, but almost, who deal with the dead bodies. They not only serve them to the birds, but they, they cut them up. They hack them up. They cut the head off. They cut the hands off. They disembowel them, and they throw it all to the waiting uh, ravens as well as um, buzzards and vultures. Mostly at that altitude is ravens. And... Uh, that was a little, uh, it was a sunrise ceremony in about 10 degrees weather. And Jake still, at, you know, he was 91 when he was writing his memoirs for me, and he still still hadn't worked through that that funeral ceremony. I thought you, you did a really interesting thing with the storytelling in this, in, 
in this novel in that the first big chunk is in kind of a present past tense and then when then when you hit put the pedal to the metal it it all goes into past tense and i thought that was a very that's an interesting decision for you as a writer i'd like you to just talk about making that and architecting that and it's beautifully written as well the prose is really uh easy to read but it's it has this kind of prickly um, detailed feel. I don't know. I felt very immersed in it. I'm glad. Some people are put off by that. Too much detail puts them off. The shape of sentences, the sound of it, the feel of it, I don't even think of them in one's ear because the sentences really go straight to the mind when you're reading. It has become more and more important to me. And uh, the older I get, the slower I write. And I read, I glance in early novels of mine and say, boy, whoever wrote that had a lot of energy. And uh, I still have enough energy to write, but I'm pouring so much of it into the shape and sound of things and the description of things and trying to create readers' reactions without putting a puppet on stage to make them, you know, see it dance. They have to imagine it. They have to they have to come to the conclusion that I want them to come to. And with a book like this, it seems straightforward enough. The guy's trying to uh, climb Mount Everest, and there's some Germans who aren't nice guys involved, and, you know, you just should be Indiana Jones. But I can't write an Indiana Jones novel. It's got to be something. Uh, I got the present tense shading into past tense from John Updike. And I admire stylists who can do something like that for a reason. John Fowles in his book Daniel Martin, which wasn't a big sales success, but which is one of my favorite novels, has it being narrated by the eponymous character Daniel Martin. It's I did this and I did that until it gets very personal. And when it's very personal about Daniel Martin, it shifts into right in the middle of a paragraph, sometimes in a sentence. It goes to third person. And it reminds us that this is really a novel written by somebody else about himself calling himself Daniel Martin. And there are a hundred ways that John Falls used to remind the reader not only that it's fiction, but that, you know, when you get close to a person's real personality, they have defense mechanisms. And third-person narration was the one that this character used. Well, it's really a delight to what you've done here. And I love, too, the just the sense of all of a sudden, as I said, there's a, a part in this book where all of a sudden the chapters are shorter, everything. <laughs> it's just like it's very much a pedal to the metal feel. And I was wondering just as you as a writer, did you write this in chronolog pretty much chronological order? And then did you just say, okay, now I'm really going to start to kick ass? Uh, except for the word ass, that's exactly what I told my wife one day. Uh, I think I said, okay, now we're, I'm shifting into third, and tomorrow it's going to be fourth gear. And since I drive sports cars, you know, it's got six gears. And I've been waiting a long time, several hundred pages to get to this, and now we're opening it up. You know, I like to drive fast cars. And it's funny that I write what some people consider slow beginning novels because I like to rev it up and I like to get it moving fast on, you know, decreasing radius turns. And that's the way the last uh, third of this novel felt to me. Just uh, couldn't drive faster. Oh, I, I would agree. And, and I wanted you to just talk a little bit about, you know, the uh, the construction uh, of the novel because I, one of the things I think you do really that I found really interesting with the details in this novel. At one point, uh, Jake has been sick. He's had what he calls dysentery for uh, a while, and he's been taking uh, lead opium. To cure it, and that's not been working. And then uh, the doctor uh, gives him something that it's sweet, and but it cures him right away. And what I, I'm guessing that you know what he got. I, a year ago, I did. I could have told you the name. It's in my notes somewhere. The uh, the Tibetans had it, and they'd used it for centuries, actually. And the Chinese also had it. Um, it could cure that problem up there. And it, it filtered into Western medicine, but only after the expense of probably a billion dollars of research. Well, that's what's, uh, I think, interesting. As a reader, we know that detail's there, and you give us enough, but keep us going on it. I think that's a really... Uh, interesting technique uh, to uh, 
use the details to kind of draw us in and keep us skipping along. Well, you may be my ideal reader because I want people skipping along that way. I want them to enjoy the detail rather than be slowed down by it. Um, You may notice in my books, um, I usually give my narrating character, if it is a first-person narration, some disability. In Drood, which is about Charles Dickens, uh, it's narrated by Wilkie Collins, who was drinking about a gallon of laudanum opium a day. And in this book, I've got a narrator who, he, he's sort of gone back to real time and trying to tell about it. Even though it's past tense, it, you feel it's more real time, like he's writing his journal on the mountain as this is happening. But the oxygen starvation of the brain is a big part of it. I, I was about 10 years old when I read one of the great classics of climbing, uh, Maurice Herzog's Annapurna. You talk about 8,000-meter peaks, and the French were the first to climb that, and Herzog led the team. been a lot of uh, controversy over the recent decades because he made them all swear and sign a contract that they wouldn't write about it. Nobody could talk about it but him, and later they disputed his view, but it's still one of the great climbing books of all time. But it does give a good sense of the problems of altitude uh, when you're in that death zone, and thinking is the main problem. He dropped his gloves. He stopped and scrooched his butt into the snow and on a very steep uh, um, cliffside uh, at 26, 27,000 feet, and he dropped his gloves, and they just dropped off 6,000 feet to the glacier below. And he knew he was going to lose his fingers unless he could get his hands covered. So it's Herzog thinking as he's at that altitude as he's going through his pack. Water bottle, no, that can't help. Extra rope. That's no good, no. Food, that's ridiculous. Two pairs of wool socks, no, no, I need something for my hands. (laughs) You know, if he'd put them on, he would have saved his hands. Instead, he lost all 10 fingers and all 10 toes. And that's just the way your mind works. I also had a whole folder of um, first-hand descriptions of hallucinations of climbers on 8,000-meter peaks, especially Everest. And I reproduce one, I have my character have it, of three unearthly alien-like beings hovering, moving along the ridge as he is. They stay in the sky. But the actual climber who experienced it in 1924 uh, tried to test his own sanity and perceptions. He'd name all, he'd look at, turn away, and he'd name all the mountain peaks around it and know their altitudes. And then he'd look back, and the things were still hovering there. They were like translucent jellyfish or manta rays. And then a cloud would become between him and them. And then he'd do mathematic tables. He got in the trigonomic in his head just to see that he could think. And he'd look back, and they were still there. And the most common thing, and I do use it, I hope to good effect in the book, that has happened to a majority of high-altitude climbers is having a phantom climber climbing with them. If there are two men on the rope, uh, the second guy is hooked onto a third. And they, for hours... They, they sometimes talk to him, you know, get answers back and forth. They can feel the pressure on the rope. And then they sit down or they take some oxygen. And there is no third man or there is no second man. And that is the most common hallucination at altitude. Well, it makes for a, a, a fascinating read. And, and, I, and I, I, the, the way you kind of take Jake in and out of that state... I think works really well for for the reader and, and we as readers we kind of experience that too which is nice well my wife says if I write one more book where somebody has a terrible headache or physical problem like that she's just gonna leave me she just wants a main character that's not in pain so I may get around to actually creating one of those someday well let's hope not too soon you know I'm wondering uh, when I think of this book it seems like a really nice pairing with the terror Uh, and and I'm wondering if you have a third book along these lines somewhere in the back of your mind percolating something that's cold and detailed and maybe historical and and just but has a a gnarly edge out there for waiting for it you know you're beginning to worry me because you're now the fourth person my agent was one my editor was another a new editor I have who said, okay, The Abominable is your second cold book after The Terror. Which one's going to be your third? As if everything has to come in trilogy, you know, everything has to come in three. I don't think I have a third cold book in me. I think I'm going to write a scary tropical book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was Fires of Eden. Yeah, you're right. I already did it. 
Well, I, and that was another thing I, I enjoyed about this book was uh, there's a couple places where you give us just a, a little tour of some of your previous work. We got a little snippet of Hemingway there and, and a little bit of India here. And I'm thinking back to reading Song of Kali and thinking, am I really going to buy this in hardcover? Well, I guess so. It's gonna, everybody seems to like it. I like his Twilight Zone stories. That was a long time ago, right? <laughs> and if you have Song Kali in hardcover, I'll give you 20 bucks for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had some paintings in our house. My parents got from Sing from Shanghai that my grandfather had brought. And, and they, we had some people who came over to buy my parents' house and said, we don't care what you want for the houses. If it comes with those paintings, we'll buy it. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what they are, but they, we still have those paintings. Oh, good. Now, uh, while we, I think this is a wonderful book, and I think our readers are, are going to enjoy this, I want to talk about your previous book, Flashback. Yeah, I didn't get to do a tour for Flashback, so I didn't get reader feedback, except on Amazon.com, which I don't read. So uh, people enjoyed reporting about the death threats there and all the one-star reviews. I'm, I, I like Flashback, and I was proud of it. I'm sorry I didn't get to talk to readers about it. Well, now, this is based on a novella from Love Death. Uh, so you took uh, your original idea and made it a lot longer and more intense, and, I, and there are some real basic differences between the two in in the way you built the world. So I, I'd like you to talk about what the core aspect of world building was and why the delta between the two stories. Well, I think every author, or at least I'll be sexist here, every male author, I think it tends more that direction, has one dystopian novel in him or her. I mean, Margaret Atwood had hers. but Three of them. Uh, yes. Um, which I would like to debate, actually, um, choices made, but I, that's not what authors should do, so I won't. But my dystopian novel would, had to be set in a post-economic collapse America. And when I wrote and published the long story, novella, Flashback, which is the name of the drug, in 1991, um, I was looking ahead to a future of about 2018, 2020, far future. And during that period of time, America has collapsed through the same type of uh, fiscal mishandling plus hyperinflation that destroyed Germany in the 1920s that I was talking about. And that gave rise to fascism, to Nazi rule, because Hitler really did solve the problem. We almost never read about that, that they had the most untenable economic problem of any major nation in the world. And while FDR was still wrestling all through the 1930s with the Depression, they took something a hundred times worse and fixed it within about three years with Hitler's juggling the books a certain way, but starting all these national projects, getting people young and healthy. Um, five out of ten men trying to enlist in America in World War II were rejected for malnutrition, dental problems. Uh, we were an ill nation. And by the 1930s, Hitler had turned Germany into this gleaming, powerful, muscular, young, you know, both male and female. The Hitler youth were the future. And he, he had projects like building the Autobahn. So I wanted a devastating economic crisis. But I wasn't interested in creating just a repressive government. I wanted um, a boy and his dog type, just everything goes future, where money is not worth a damn. And, and we deal with something else. But America has become the, the sickest, saddest shadow of its former self. It's nobody in the world, and Americans don't feel special about being Americans. And they're living in the... It's, it's like the peasants in the Middle Ages who were living in the shadows of the ruins of the Roman Empire and really didn't know who had built these aqueducts and so forth. Like the McDonald's workers today. Yeah, like the, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, the Roman, the, the peasants, you know, Roman aqueducts and the McDonald's workers, right? Um, so when I wrote it in 1991, I had uh, the young character in it, the, the son, give this uh, rant about the person, the last president standing, the way my father hated Herbert Hoover. Now, Hoover didn't create the Depression. He just didn't fix it. But he was one of two men my father hated, public men, the other being Douglas MacArthur, because Hoover sicked General MacArthur on Hooverville, if you remember that. Do you remember the Bonus Army? Mm -mm. In the, the depths of the Depression, 1932, 
uh, all the, the veterans who were promised bonuses from the Great War, the war to end all wars, World War I, went to Washington and camped out on the mall, thousands of them, families in cardboard little shacks, demanding their bonus. They needed the money. And Congress had promised it to them and had not kept its promise. And, and uh, I'm sorry, this is 1929. And um, Herbert Hoover sicked Douglas MacArthur on them, who went in with bayonets fixed. And he had his uh, tank commander. They only had five tanks, but there was, that was a guy named Patton running the tanks. And they killed some of these protesters. And a, a child died. They launched uh, all sorts of gases into, the, into Hooverville. There are thousands of people living there because they wanted the money before they'd go home. And so my dad never forgave Herbert Hoover for reacting that way to the Depression, nor Douglas MacArthur, MacArthur, who was a brilliant general in World War II, but he had attacked the Bonus Army that everybody had forgotten about. And so I have my character Val attack Ronald Reagan in the 1991 version. You know, he, he acted like our grandfather when actually the mofo was stealing us blind. He ruined everything, you know, just to build up the military. And where's that now? Who knows? Somebody else is using it. Blah, 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 blah. And so if this book had been published as it was supposed to have been published in 1993, I flattered myself that I would be the hero of progressives everywhere. everywhere. But I made the mistake of doing my research in Japan in 1992 because in, in the novel I wanted to make from the novella Flashback, I wanted to know how the Japanese economy was working, why it was such a dynamo. If you remember the early 90s, schools were teaching Japanese to first graders because Jap the Japanese would be their employers in the future. That was the famous Michael Crichton novel, uh, Red Sun, I think it was. Yes. Everybody felt the Japanese were going to be essentially our economic masters within a decade or two. And after I was in Japan 10 days, I called my publisher. And I said, I'm going to have to write a different book. And he said, why? What, what could you find out in Japan that would ruin this? We like the outline. I said, what I've found is an economy that is such a consensual hallucination that it's going to collapse, uh, at least to the point I think they're going to just be stagnated for years. It can't be the superpower that I'm going to be writing about in the time frame because they don't understand that the value of property can go downward. You know, they bought Rockefeller Center, they bought downtown Los Angeles, they bought most of the Hawaiian Islands. They, property always goes up. I remember that vividly. Yeah, and then when I was in Tokyo, you know, Tokyo is a bunch of villages that have been subsumed in one of the, the most crowded cities in the world. But you drive by these empty lots and little vegetable gardens, and they're worth billions of yen, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the airspace over nothing in Tokyo was worth X amount. And I don't know beans about economics. I probably got a D in college. But I knew I couldn't write that book of Japan being the economic supergiant uh, when I thought things were going to go bad. And indeed, they did the next year. So I waited until I felt that I could create another future, dystopian future, about 20, 25 to 30 years in the future, where the United States had bankrupted itself. And this time it did it by simply running the debt up to the point where you can't pay your interest on the national debt, at which point all bets are off. The economy goes under. You know, one of the things about uh, Flashback that I liked and I thought was really different is we're in a, you know, this is really boom times for dystopian fiction. Everywhere you turn on every bookshelf, there's another dystopia novel. It's, you know, the near future. It's, you know, it's zombies, vampires, zombie vampires, vampire zombies, corporate zombies, corporate vampires, corporate vampires, zombies. It doesn't matter. They've decimated the world in some way. You know, that's a good pitch. I'll take that. <laughs> Here's your five million. Go make it. <laughs> well, what the, the upshot of all this is... It's these dis supposed dystopias are very comforting worlds. They're places we kind of like to live. All the detritus, the things that we have to deal with in modern civilization are cut away. Moral choices are very clear. Their heroes are com easily identifiable. Villains are easily identifiable. Dystopia is very nice. It's a kind of a cool place to be. You want to be in that dystopia. I don't want to be in the world in flashback. Flashback is an unhappy dystopia. It has to be, because uh, it, the book is about the drug flashback. And those who wanted to politically 
crucify me, forget it. it was not a political rant. I had to bankrupt the United States and get it to the point it was so that 87% of Americans in the book are high on flashback most of their conscious hours. They're using a drug that allows them to relive the good parts of their life. And I think that happens to nations. If I am obsessed about anything, it's, a, it's not politics, it's history. And every, every great nation and empire goes under at some point. But there's that, that tipping point where suddenly everybody remembers the good old days that may not have been so good, but at least they were dynamic. It's sort of like the gasping end of the British Empire. You know, in the late 1800s where Winston Churchill was formed, where his personality was formed, and he never grew out of it. It was just, we can do anything. Our little tiny island can rule the world. And by God, they did for a short period of time. But afterwards, a long, cold, depressing reality sets in. And I think if the Britons, if it hadn't been for World War II, I think if they'd had flashback to snort and gone back to their earlier days and their happier memories, they would have done it. And in the landscape that I tried to create in the book Flashback, I would be taking the drug Flashback and remembering happier times. Uh, one of the things I think that's really nice, though, is that you give us a really great adventure story and a great detective story. And, and I'd like you to talk about uh, creating the, the characters for that book. Uh, Nick Bottom is, is a really, he's one of your more appealing characters, I think. Why? Because he's. He's just such a wreck. <laughs> and I really like that about him, that he's a wreck, but he's, you know, he's trying. On it, and I really thought that, I found that to be really appealing. Uh, Stephen King's new book deals with addiction. I, I think King finally went down to the dungeon beneath the dungeon beneath the dungeon that he'd been to before in his own past and dealt with something that he's he's worked on before, but the new book, works so deeply with the problem of addiction alcoholism. And Nick is just that sort of mess. Somebody lost to drugs. He can't let his wife go, who died in an accident, which made no sense, a traffic accident. And why do you have to let somebody go if you can take this aerosol and be back with them, be on your honeymoon, and remember the time and then relive it? And so he has nowhere to go but up and out of the past. And I think sometimes whole countries get that way. That's an interesting uh, perception uh, for a, a science fiction novel that uh, you're writing not about the present, not about the future, but about the past. And I think that because so so much science fiction is really about the present, it's all written about the present. But, yeah. But to but to uh, rebuild the past out into the future, that's an interesting experiment. Well, you know, sometimes I feel that I'm living in a different world than other people. My wife is sure I am because there'll be a, a beer commercial on TV and the beer can is being launched from Cape Canaveral. And it's wonderful CGI, you know, and there are the boosters, just like with the space shuttle, the solid rocket boosters, and you hear the Capcom saying, we have launch and liftoff, and it's uh, some Coors can or something. And I'm standing up yelling at the flat screen TV, we don't even have a space program anymore. We can't get our own human beings into space for the first time since 1960. What are you launching beer into space for? Give us back our space program. we got to pay the Russians. And uh, I will probably be put somewhere in an institution if I keep doing that. But I, I look around and I say, doesn't anybody else miss the fact that we had a manned spaceflight program for all those years? That we had all these amazing adventures and now we're paying the Russians to haul us up to that orbital septic tank? And evidently nobody else does. Well, no, I w you're talking to, a, to a, a kid who built every Gemini model, every Mercury model. I built out the whole launch pad. I had I every Revelation. I did, too. Yes, the Atlas uh, one, yeah, with the, <laughs> the Mercury. You had to build a launch pad with all those girders. That, that was real model building for me. Yeah, yeah, that was the, those were the days of the Revell models, huh? Now, that's <laughs> – there, there's some nostalgia. Uh, I'd like you to talk uh, – one of the things about uh, flashback that I think is is so interesting is the the way that you've woven in some of these other characters. There's a particular, there's a samurai character who's really great. So uh, talk about creating the different characters in this and uh, 
turning your dystopia into, you know, kind of a hard-boiled detective novel. Well, it had to be that. I mean, there's a... I remember when I first saw Blade Runner, it was not too many years after I'd first been to India, and Blade Runner hit me for that reason. I didn't believe for a second that that was going to be the future, or it was any sort of real... First of all, they put it, what was it, 2019, 2009? 2014. Yeah. And I said, all this stuff is being built while we're not watching because it can't be built in the time left. And uh, and in the end, they fly out into a perfect, pristine landscape, all the outtakes for the beginning of The Shining. And there's that beautiful landscape, and the world is perfectly pure and blue skies. Why are they in those rainy, crowded, miserable cities? Nothing made sense. But the feeling, the hard-boiled feeling of it, was really good, especially in the director's cut where they didn't chicken out and have Harrison Ford narrate everything. Although I like narration in a hard-boiled movie. Um, So it had to have that hard-boiled. And as long as you're going to have hard-boiled detective doing stuff in this noir future, you might as well have some ninjas and some action-thrilling stuff and maybe even some combat. And I'll throw that in, too. You know, when we're talking about the the combat in that book and and the many scenes in this in uh, the Abominable that have this vivid kind of action blocking, I'd like you to just talk about uh, crafting those. You talked about being in your office surrounded by photographs. Do you uh, use some kind of software to create three D environments, or just sketch stuff out, or does it all happen on the page? I use a very elaborate software that it's taken six billion years to evolve. That would be the English language? uh, It's the English language, one of the last expressions of that in the human brain, which creates amazing 3D models. And it runs different variants of it, and it has uh, a wonderful selector to choose the best variation of different versions of an action scene or a love scene or anything. Um, And I'm I'm more than semi-serious about this because I've said to writing groups and college students writing groups that they don't quite understand um, what the difference between a professional writer and somebody who's good but not anywhere near the professional level. They don't understand the, the width and breadth of the abyss, the gap. And I said, it's, uh, and they did studies in the 90s about some of the chess masters who were just being beaten for the first time by programmed computerized chess programs. And what they found, of course, is that the, the chess program can run two million variations on a move um, in a hundredth of a second. But a human chess master doesn't see, obviously not a million moves, it doesn't see 30 moves, he doesn't, or she, they don't see 10 moves, they only see the three best moves, or two. That's what that talent brings. And a writer has to either have or develop that same ability not to have an infinite variety of scenes in his or her mind, but just the best ones, and have some way of selecting the best from the best. This sounds like I'm praising myself, but I couldn't have written 29 books if I had to go write these scenes through a a process of successive approximation. That's why I'm no good at teaching uh, like graduate students or adults about revising, because I don't go back and start the book over. I simply don't do that second draft, you know, that Stephen King and others talk about. I keep working on the chapter and page level until I'm happy with it. Uh, I think I'm almost there. That's this probably it. And then I go on to the next chapter. Uh, tell us what you're working on now. I'm having the most fun, which might bode poorly for the reader because usually the harder the writing, the easier the reading. But I'm having so much fun now, although it, it is labor. You talk about research. I'm doing a book called The Fifth Heart that I've been waiting to do for many years. And why, have you, why have you waited? Well, one reason was that at one point uh, my publisher at the time put it into a contract that I could not write any book that had Henry James and Sherlock Holmes both in it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> they were actively frightened by this concept. But uh, I'm out from under that shadow now. And so in The Fifth Heart, it's really about the five of hearts or the five hearts, which uh, was Henry Adams in Washington, lived across the street from the White House, and his uh, creative, emotionally unstable wife, Clover, who committed suicide in 1885, and John Hay, who was the young secretary to Abraham Lincoln when he was only 23, 24 years old, who was then a famous diplomat and is a center of... uh, statesmanship in Washington. He's not part of the State Department in 1893 when the book is set. John Hay and his wife, Clara, 
and the two Adamses, and an amazing adventurer, climber, speculator, gold miner named Clarence King, about which you could write action novels. He was the fifth heart, and he had special teacups made for them. And they were all short people. I think five, six was the average for the men as well as the women. So it, everything was delicate and tiny, tiny little porcelain teapot with a clock saying 5 p.m. when they met, and then the teacups with a little clock saying 5 p.m., and then there's a heart-shaped little porcelain tray, and that's what Clarence King made for them. And they met every day at 5 to talk about the world's problems, and they were funny and witty, and, you know, they would uh, say things like... Uh, um, Henry Adams would say, why don't we be vulgar and invite the president to our next soiree? And Clover would say, why don't we not? <laughs> that would ruin the entire party. And that was true. They were more the center of society in Washington than any president was. So what I have is a very depressed Henry James in 1893. There's this little gap in the history of Henry James. who, You know every minute of his life. It's one of the most well-documented lives of any writer or any person. But in the spring of 1893, right before his 50th birthday, he sort of dropped off the map. We know he went to Paris, but he was he was missing for a while. And that's funny because at the same period that Sherlock Holmes was missing for three years. And I have the two men bump it to each other in the middle of the night in the darkness, standing on the darkest bank of the Seine River, ready to jump in and drown themselves for different reasons. And then uh, suddenly James realized this tall man standing next to him and a passing a barge lights it up and James says, good heavens, you're Sherlock Holmes. And Holmes grabs him and Henry James does not like to be touched, but Holmes grabs him and says, you know me? He said, why yes, we met at, uh, at Lady Wolseley's party three years ago. You know me, says Holmes, because Holmes has used his ratiocination to come to the absolute conclusion that he's a fictional character. And here's this person, he's quite sure he's real, who knows him. So they end up going off to have wine and dinner and end up going back to America to solve the suicide death of Clover Adams. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And now this gives you uh, two canvases where you are going to be forced to find the dark spots and fill them in. The fictional canvas, the fictional life of Sherlock Holmes, and the actual life of Henry James. This must be a, a fun overlap. It's fun overlap, but you know, I made a lot of people mad at me who took a flashback as a political statement rather than as a novel. So think of the Holmesians when I mess with the canon of Sherlock Holmes, where I not only tell him where he actually was during those three years, but reveal some things about his childhood and so forth. Also, Holmes has followed Watson's suggestion that he go off the 7% solution of cocaine injected because it might not be healthy. So when Holmes gets to America, he buys a new drug that was uh, had just been developed by Bayer Aspirin people in Germany, but it was being sold in America more than in Europe. And it was such a good drug and it had so few side effects, they call it heroic. So he's buying this heroic drug called heroin. He's injecting it instead. So I don't want the Holmesians mad at me, but I hope they enjoy the book. I, I'm sure they will. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, at least you'll get a reaction, and that's what you want. You're a writer, right? That's right. Actually, sometimes I think that's what we writers want more than anything else. You know, good, bad, negative, whatever, to some strong reaction to our work. Well, <clears throat> I totally enjoyed The Abominable. I found it just wonderfully immersive. I'm glad, Rick. I'm really glad you liked it. I've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His newest novel is The Abominable. Thank you for joining me, Dan. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.